I started thinking about all the things I had experienced that season. It was like an epiphany. It was like, bruh, I really, really enjoy through hiking. You know, this is going to be my life. This is for me. It's not just that I want to come back next season because I had a goal and I felt like I didn't accomplish it. I want to come back next season because I love this lifestyle and it's, it's helped me so much and I enjoy it so much. I, I just need to go back. Welcome back, everyone, to the Out and Back podcast presented by Gaia GPS. I'm your host, Shanti, and that was Will Robinson, who's known as Akuna, out on the trail. I'm so excited for this conversation with Akuna today because we're going to be talking about how hiking has helped Akuna, specifically about how hiking helped him heal. Akuna is an army vet, and after serving a combat tour of Iraq, he was physically injured and suffering from depression and PTSD. And re-entry to civilian life was, it was rough for him. He spent years in a downward spiral, self-medicating and avoiding social encounters. He remembered reading about the Pacific Crest Trail when he was overseas. And then one day when he was watching a certain movie, it suddenly clicked with him. And as soon as he could get his gear and supplies together, Bakuna was off on the Pacific Crest Trail, where he found purpose, community, and the space and time he needed to focus on himself. Akuna's trail experience turned out to be so powerful, and we'll get into the reason why, that he couldn't get enough. And so after the PCT, he then hiked the AT and the CDT. And in doing so, he became the first black man to complete the Triple Crown. Through his trips, he became a leader in the outdoor community and an inspiration to everyone who's taking on the long trails. But maybe most importantly, he especially became an inspiration to veterans and people of color who want to break into backpacking but might not feel welcomed into the outdoors because of various forms of oppression and a lack of representation. So we have a lot of important and great stuff to talk about with Akuna today, and I can't wait to dive into it. But first, and real quick before we get started, we want to help you get on whatever trail you might be seeking with a Gaia GPS membership. Visit GaiaGPS.com, that's G-A-I-A-G-P-S.com, slash podcast today, to get up to a 50% discount on a Gaia GPS membership. With that membership, you can download all of your favorite trail maps and take them offline with you. It's got everything from satellite imagery to USGS topo maps to national park visitor maps, so you can plan your trip well in advance. And here's another cool fact for you. Did you know that Gaia GPS is CarPlay compatible? That's right, you can build a route on your desktop, plug it into your phone, Follow the turn-by-turn directions right to the trailhead, and then use Gaia to guide you right down that trail into your wilderness adventure. Such a great package, all included in one amazing app. So again, GaiaGPS.com slash podcast to get up to a 50% discount on a Gaia GPS membership today. And so, without further ado, here's Akuna. Joining me today is Will Robinson, known in the hiking community as Akuna. Thanks for being on the show, Akuna. Uh, no problem. Thanks for having me. There's a bunch of things I want to talk about with you today. I want to talk with you, of course, about your Triple Crown, and I really want to talk with you about how you've used hiking as a tool for personal healing. But before we do that, I want to get into your background story a little bit so our audience knows more about the man named Will Robinson, a.k.a. Akuna. 
So first off, if you can, please tell us about your upbringing. What was life like for you as a kid and growing up before you got into hiking? You know, I, growing up as a kid, you know, I, I, I kind of thought my childhood was pretty normal. But it, I ended up realizing that it was abnormal. I was a military child, so I was born in Germany. And I spent a lot of my life, my early years in Germany. You know, we would come back to the States for a short period of time and then we'd go right back to Germany. We came back to the States full time, probably when I was around 13. And I would talk about places like Paris or I would talk about England or I would talk about Czechoslovakia and all the kids would look at me like, you've been to all these places? It's like, yeah, isn't that pretty normal? It's like, no, that's absolutely not even close to being normal. You know, and uh, my home, my home here in, this, in the United States has always been New Orleans. You know, we would come back and forth here to visit my dad's family. And for the longest, that's all I knew of the United States. You know, when we talked about America, we were talking about New Orleans. That was all America to me. And, you know, growing up here in the 90s, you know, uh, it was uh, kind of a, a rough patch. You know, uh, New Orleans is a city that's full of poverty. It was uh, in the 90s. It was the murder capital of the United States. And the life expectancy for a black male was only 18. So, you know, you had uh, you had, you know, the peers in the community are only like 19 or 20 years old. And, you know, they're trying to teach all this, us youngins, you know, a lot of good things and a lot of bad things. But we really didn't have those older peers to kind of show us the right path. And when you were growing up, um after coming to the States, like what was that transition in culture like um, coming into New Orleans as opposed to growing up in Germany? You know, growing up in Germany, you know, my first say 10 years of my life, it made it to where I was behind on a lot of stuff when we came back to the United States. You know, I like not as far as uh, pop culture, you know, we got everything a little later out there. So, you know, I came back to the States dressed one way and everyone's looking at me like, what is this clown doing walking around with that outfit on? <laughs> but it also sheltered me from other things. It's like things like prejudice or racism. I didn't experience that overseas in Germany. You know, I, I never I only experienced it when we first moved back to the, U the U.S. permanently. My dad's last two years in the military, he was assigned to a National Guard unit in Mississippi, small community, less than a thousand people. The nearest family of color was like 15 miles away from us. And that's where I realized that racism and discrimination is real. It's not just something we've seen on TV or in movies. Uh, so, you know, I've been to many different countries, you know, growing up and spent time in Korea. When I was in the army, I visited Japan and you know, every company, uh, every country that has people of color has some form of discrimination. But here in America is way off the charts. In your time growing up then in the South after you came to America or even in your time before that in Germany, um, did you have any experience with the outdoors? Were you doing any camping or backpacking? Uh, no camping or backpacking. You know, mainly my outdoor world was fishing. You know, my father and my grandfather, we would go out fishing. Maybe my Paul ran, or as you you guys would say, your godfather would take me out, you know, fishing. But, uh, you know, recently I thought back on this and tried to figure out if I'd ever been hiking before. And I never did, thought I did. But uh, actually, when I was a kid in Germany, we would do these things on weekends called ghost marching. And what that was, was, you know, you would go on a 5K or a 10K with your family 
you would, uh, you know, maybe use a cane or a hiking stick and you're just basically kind of walking around town and you would go from one checkpoint to the next. You get your little passport stamped. And at the end, if you had enough stamps, you would get a prize like a, a custom beer stein or a plate. So I think uh, that was probably my introduction to hiking and I had completely forgot about it. So you were really enjoying those? Like that was kind of the first point of, hey, you know, walking around from place to place, getting a passport stamp, checking out these new areas like this is something new and exciting for me. Since I was super young, I enjoyed it because, you know, there was a prize at the end. That and in Germany, when it's cold out, instead of drinking hot chocolate, these checkpoints would have hot wine. So it was an excuse for, you know, me and my sister to be able to drink some wine and pretend like we were grown. (laughs) But, you know, I, I don't know if it was so much the walking that we enjoyed, but it was all the amenities that came with it. So you start growing up and then if I'm not mistaken, then you got um, you got into the military when you were in your late teens. Um, was it the Army? Marines? Army. 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 That's right. So so how did you get into the Army? What uh, what what inspired you to go into the armed forces? You know, uh, my whole life, my dad always told me the same thing you are not joining the military. You know, my dad served over 20 years and he would always tell me, I did enough time for our entire family. You are not doing it. You're going to college. Enough said. I've heard that my entire life. But when we moved back here to Louisiana, you know, I, uh, you know, I got out out, all out in the streets running around, getting in trouble, doing a whole bunch of stuff I wasn't supposed to be doing. But because I was a straight A student, you know, honor society and all these other things, I was getting away with it for the most part. No one pretty much knew what I was doing at home. I would just go into the city and do all of my dirt. And at a time it came back to me and I was facing a couple charges after my 18th birthday. And I'm in court, you know, my family's there hearing these charges and they have no clue that I was doing all of this stuff. And I'm looking back at them them seeing the shock. I know I'm probably getting ready to go to jail for some time. And this stranger just stands up in the crowd and he's like, you know, I've been working with this young man. He just turned 18 not long ago. And he's been trying to go to the military. We're just doing all his paperwork. You know, uh, if he goes to the military, would you be willing to, you know, uh, erase his record? And I had never seen this person before in my life. So I, I don't know where it all came from. But the uh, judge in that matter was a veteran. He was a Marine. And he said, basically, you know, yeah, he just turned 18. He's a smart kid. You know, uh, I think we could uh, go ahead and expunge his record if he's willing to do four years in the military. I see potential there. And, uh, you know, I took that chance. And a couple months later, I was in basic training and never looked back. Wow. What year was this? Uh, I went to... I first started enlisting the process of enlisting in 99 and I was in what was called delayed entry program, waiting for slots and things to open up. So I didn't officially go to basic until March, 2000, March, 2000. And then, uh, how long were you in the, uh, service? Mm. Just short of five years, five years. Wow. So that means you were right in the middle of, uh, operation enduring freedom. Yes, um, my unit was uh, some of the first people to deploy to Iraq back in um, the beginning of April, late March 2003. Wow. How long were you serving in Iraq? I was in Iraq for six months and then I was uh, medically evacuated to Germany to do some surgeries and then back to Colorado. 
So then here's the thing I wonder, you know, it's, of course, thank you for your service. You know, it's, no it's, it's, it's wonderful salute to all of our veterans, but, um, Something I'm always curious about um, with our armed forces when they're serving overseas is what they always do to find uh, recreation and like find interests for themselves for when they get back uh, from their service. And if I'm not mistaken, uh, when you were serving, was that the first time you had heard of uh, the Pacific Crest Trail? Yes, it was the first time I had heard of the PCT. It was the first time I heard of uh, through hiking or long distance hiking. You know, we did many of things to try to pass the time because most of the time in a combat zone, if you're an MOS like mine, my job, electronics for hel- uh, helicopters, Apaches, a lot of it, you don't have a lot to do. So we entertained ourselves any way possible. And one of the things we looked forward to was care packages that were sent back, sent from uh, people in the U.S. to the soldiers overseas. And they would have magazines in them, books, you know, candies, treats. And in one of these boxes, I found a trail guide for the Pacific Crest Trail. And, you know, I started reading it and looking at the pictures and it would take my mind to another place. It would take it off, you know, all the the stress of being in a combat zone and all the things that come along with that. And it became, you know, my everything. I would read or just flip through and look at these pictures every day. The entire time I was out there, like one day. I'm going to do this. This this is something I want to do. I want to see this uh, Southern Terminus that's out here in the middle of nowhere, California. You know, I want to be out there. I don't want to be here. So one day it's going to happen. And uh, that's how I first learned about the Pacific Crest Trail. So then when you came back from your service after being medically discharged, going to Germany and ultimately coming back to the U.S., um, well, I'm curious to know is why didn't you go right to the uh, Pacific Crest Trail? Uh, you know, uh, when I came back from, you know, Iraq, I spent probably uh, the first year or two in and out of hospitals for different surgeries to reconstruct my hand and my wrist. Uh, started developing PTSD at the time. I didn't know what it was. And I was uh, told I was having normal transitioning problems with uh, all the medical things that I had going on. It took another year for me to get out the military. Uh, when I left the military, I came back home to Louisiana, found a, a job, you know, tried to to learn how to be a civilian. And then Hurricane Katrina hit. So uh, that's right. 2005. Yeah. yeah. How so how did Katrina affect you personally? You know, Katrina, it was uh, very, very hard on the people here in southeast Louisiana, you know. Uh, people's homes were, were destroyed. I and mean, we had pretty much the majority, a good portion of my family from New Orleans here at our home in Slidell because uh, we had a little better protection here. We did get some flooding, uh, some minor flooding where I live and a couple trees that did fall onto our roof. But uh, we were in a lot better situation than a lot of other people were. And, you know, uh, some people, you know, all they go through a big panic when things like this happen, but for some reason, I always thrive in chaos. So I was always the one that was out trying to to make sure we had everything we needed. In my community, there's a lot of elderly people, so I was always out trying to check on them, make sure they had everything they needed. And you know, I guess I kind of uh, just went right back to being a soldier and trying to fit in where I needed to fit in. So I, I kept myself pretty busy during that time. So you have Katrina, you're recovering from your medical issues. Um, I'd like to know more about how the transition panned out for you. How did it go for you? 
it's like for a lot of veterans, horribly. You know, part of the thing about being in the military is there's someone to take care of every issue that you have, be it financial, you know, medical, spiritual, it doesn't matter. Someone's job is to handle that. When you're uh, getting out the military, there's no one there anymore to take care of the financial issues or the medical issues or anything. You're on your own. There is no lifeline. So uh, also in the military, <clears throat> there's this whole thing of really about not reaching out for help when it's medical things. You know, uh, say sick call for us. That's mm -hmm. the first step for getting any type of medical treatment. You have to go to sick call and then they refer you to where you need to go. Sick call is usually during PT hours. So the thing is, is if you're going to sick call, you're only doing it to get out of going to PT. So it was frowned upon. So those four or five years I was in the military, I wasn't conditioned to go seek help when something was wrong. You know, I, I could dislocate a shoulder and still be at PT that day. So I wouldn't be accused of shamming. So when I was having the, uh, the, the problems with depression and the problems with PTSD, I didn't reach out for help in the military. And when I first got out the military, the same thing happened. I tried to reach out once to my local veteran affairs, and I was told that, oh, that's just normal transitioning problems going from soldier to veteran. And since I was dismissed so quick, it, was, it took a long time for me to go back. So what I ended up having to deal with a lot was just crippling depression to where I didn't want to leave my home. I didn't want to interact with the people that I'd known for years. The things that used to give me joy never gave me joy. During this time, I actually got married. And between anger that I had from PTSD and being depressed and anxiety all the time, I, I completely ruined that marriage and ended up divorced and back here in Louisiana. And during this whole time, I'm self-medicating. I'm self-medicating with alcohol. I was drinking all the time like a fish. You know, from the time I woke up into the time I went to sleep, I probably had a bottle somewhere close. You know, I just kind of shut myself out to the world and thought this was just going to be my new norm. I'm so sorry that you had to go through that. It's it's terrible. And the thing that upsets me is hearing the, the dismissiveness of it that seems to come down from authorities of, oh, it's just part of the normal transition. Back then, you know, I was probably in that group of the first people coming back from Iraq. And I, I don't think the Veterans Affairs medical facilities and things were prepared to deal with PTSD and the numbers of people that were being affected with it. So I, I think at that time, the ball was completely dropped. Yeah. So you've come into a bad space now as you're trying to transition. Um, ultimately, I know it's, it's a tough point, but now it starts to lead towards something that ultimately becomes your story that we're talking about now today, hiking, backpacking, hiking for healing. How did you get into hiking from that low point in your life? You know, in uh, 2016, you know, uh, the years prior to 13 years prior, it just was a downward spiral. I just continued to get worse and worse and worse and worse and worse. By 2016, my room in my home was basically a prison. I didn't leave unless I absolutely had to for a doctor's appointment or something like that. I didn't interact with friends. I didn't interact with family. I was just laying in my bed depressed almost 24-7. And I started thinking to myself, you know, 
that I have to change things up. I have to do something. You know, uh, four years earlier, my mother had passed away and my mother was uh, a big, big part of my life. And, you know, she watched me struggle and go through things. She uh, was there when I was hurting myself and attempting suicide. And she made me promise I would never hurt myself again. So I kept that promise for those four years and I was just getting more miserable. And in my darkest uh, moment in 2016, I just knew I needed to do something drastic. I, I have to, you know, I'm in a drastic spot. I have to do something drastic to get out of it. And while I was thinking this, you know, my TV was on like it always is. And I look up and I see Reese Witherspoon walking through the desert with this giant backpack on him. And it caught my attention. So I, you know, I put the menu button to see what it was. And it was Wild, you know, the film adaptation of Cheryl Strait's book, Wild. And I watched it for a couple seconds and I heard her say the, the word PCT, you know, and it's like PCT. Why does that sound familiar? And then I started thinking again, it's like maybe that's that guidebook that I read in Iraq like 13 years ago. Maybe that's what that is. So, you know, these days when you need information, it's not like when we we're younger, Encyclopedia Britannica. Now it's just Google. So I'm Googling wild and Cheryl Strait and Reese Witherspoon and see Pacific Crest Trail. And I instantly, when I saw the terminus, was like, this is that guidebook that I read all that time that kept me, my, my mind occupied in Iraq. And this is, it's real, you know, it's right here in front of me. It's not just the book. People are still doing this. So, you know, for some reason, even though I didn't know anything about backpacking or hiking, I knew that's where I needed to be. This is where I'm going to get back to being me, you know? This is where the the dark clouds are going to part. I have to do this. It's like divine providence almost. I get this feeling of it's just like something strikes at the right moment. Definitely, definitely. It was the exact right moment for me. And, you know, I never had a lot, but I had enough at that moment in order to start ordering gear that night, staying up all night, looking at blogs and getting everything that I thought I needed plus more. And, you know, within two weeks, I was in campo rest ready to start the trail i i remember the opening scene of wild it's literally uh cheryl Strayed ripping her boot off ripping the toenail off and throwing the boot into uh the middle of the mountains and just screaming at the top of her lungs like were you having any thoughts or concerns about that when you were in campo to start the pct like oh my gosh you know what am i getting myself into or oh i hope i can make it at first for me I, I when i got to san diego i stayed with the trail angel bob that uh, was going to provide me a ride to the trail the next morning. Absolutely great individual. And I was just excited that whole time. It's like, I'm doing something. I haven't done anything in years. You know, I'm going, I got a goal and I'm trying to accomplish something. So it was nothing but excitement until he dropped me off at the terminus. You know, he took a picture, you know, for me and everything. He looked me in my eyes and he told me the gravity of the situation you find yourself in is going to become apparent when you see my taillights disappear into the darkness. And I'm like, okay, yeah, you know, uh, he's just saying that. But as soon as those taillights disappeared and the sun hadn't even came up yet, I found myself at that terminus by myself. Like, what in the heck did I just get myself into? So I'm just looking past the terminus. And I, I promise you, I think I sat there for like 20 to 30 minutes. Like, do I walk forward? Do I walk on this road to the left? You know, what's this all about? Tell us about those first few weeks when you were on the trail. Like, what was it like out there? What was happening that 
you weren't expecting or like, what were those first few weeks like? And the first few weeks, I think what I struggled with most was social interactions. You know, when you're thinking about going on this long distance hike through the wilderness, you're not expecting to be around so many people. I I thought I was going to be, you know, by myself on this trail, wouldn't see people for days. But in all actuality, when you get onto a trail like the PCT, you're around people almost constantly. And, you know, the social interactions, that was something that I had hadn't had a lot of experience with in the last 13 years. You know, I had cut that part out of my life. I didn't want to be around people for so many years. So I I struggled opening up to people and being around people at times, you know, feeling like, okay, they're going to know my dirty little secret that I have PTSD or I'm depressed a lot. So it kept me a little isolated from people at times. And it was such a weird thing is, much as I didn't think I needed social interactions, I realized during that time that I actually craved being around people. You know, that's my favorite part of through hiking now is the people that you meet and the interactions that you have. Did you form a uh, trail family as you were going along the PCT? I, I ended up having a, a trail family very early on. I mean, by the end of the first night, I basically had started my first trail family with a, a lady named Cookie and Cookie Cookie became trail family day one because she saved me. <laughs> she saved you. How did she save you? You know, uh, the first day, you know, like I was saying earlier, I was all smiles. I thought I was knew what I was doing until all the other hikers just beasted right past me like I wasn't even moving. And that's when I realized through hiking is a little more than when I thought it's just a walk. So I picked up the pace a little and I kept going and, um, Cookie, she had actually passed me maybe an hour or two earlier and said hello. And I caught up to with, with her. She was taking a break on a rock. And when I got there, she just looked at me and she's like, dude, you don't look like you're doing very well. It's like, I don't know what in the world is going on. I feel like my body is crashing. Like my energy is just nowhere. And I, I don't I'm not really sure something's not right. She's like, have you been drinking water? Because, you know, it's hot out. It's like, yeah, I've been drinking water. And I'm from Louisiana. I'm used to the heat. You know, uh, she started running running off different scenarios and different things that could be the problem. It's like, you know, no, it can't be that. It can't be that. She's like, well, what'd you eat today? And I started thinking about it. And I was like, you know, <laughs> I left my home in Louisiana on the 31st that morning, early in the morning. I caught my flight, so I was excited. I didn't eat anything that day. I didn't eat in the airport. I landed in San Diego, went immediately to Bob's that night, and uh, didn't eat anything there. That morning, he offered me breakfast, but I was so excited to start the trail that I didn't eat then, so I didn't realize I hadn't eaten like 48 hours, and that was the crash. So she just starts stuffing cookies down my throat, <laughs> you know, and that, that's how I gave her the trail name Cookie. I, th- I was about to say, I think we just figured out how she got her trail yeah. name. <laughs> you know, Cookie, Tough Cookie, Cookie Monster, all of those are, you know, Cookie right there. But, you know, she sat with me, she fed me cookies until the energy came back. And then we started hiking together from there. How the heck did you get the trail name Akuna? Well, Cookie actually gave me the trail name. You know, we were sitting around talking one day and, you know, she started asking me questions like, hey, this is a dry year. What are you going to do about water? It's like, nah, we'll figure it out. I'm not going to worry about it. Well, you know, 
what about the snow in the Sierras? What are you thinking of doing? Do you know how to use the ice axe or micro spikes? It's like, man, we have 702 miles before we get there. I'll figure it out then. What about resupplies and food? It's like, I'm not worrying about it. It will work itself out. And she was just telling me, you know, hey, it doesn't seem like you're worrying about anything. It's like, no, I'm trying not to. In my normal life, I worry about everything. Here, I'm only going to worry about two things. Am I going the right direction and where's the next water? And she was like, I think that's cool that you're just not going to worry about a lot of things. And, you know, she started calling me no worries. And then it became a Kuna Matata. And, you know, now it's just a Kuna. A Kuna Matata, Lion King. Yes, indeed. So then those first few weeks, you know, even despite having the crash, did you find as time went on, like you were just loving it right from the bat? I absolutely love the desert. You know, I mean, some people can't stand the desert. The desert is actually my favorite section of the PCT. You know, going from Iraq type deserts to Southern Cal, deserts are completely different. You know, there's so much life in the, the deserts of SoCal, so many flowers, so many, you know, lizards that like to walk along with you and then they'll stop and wait for you to catch up and then they'll go, they'll keep going. I mean, if I tell the truth, I've had a lot of conversations with those little fellas over the years, <laughs> but, uh, you know, it's, it's just a, such a beautiful, beautiful section. I mean, and it, you're right. It is definitely isn't flat, you know, coming from Louisiana where we have like zero altitude. I mean, my house right now is negative 14 feet below sea, uh, below sea level. It was a huge, huge, huge adjustment, you know, having to go up these hills or mountains and not being able to breathe and thinking, oh, my goodness, what in the world is this? I lived in Colorado for a couple of years in the Army, so I figured out oh, this won't be no problem. But I never went up into the mountains or anything that whole time. So I, I did struggle you know, learning how to control my breathing and getting acclimated to elevation. Wow. And then that, I guess, a good warm up, too, because then you got the Sierras coming after that. Um, so you like the desert more than the Sierras or anything beyond that? Definitely. I love the desert. I mean, I like the entire trail. The desert is my favorite. You know, I'm, I guess I'm the opposite of most through hikers. You know, I love being hot. Most through hikers don't. You know, I like to hike during hot parts of the day. Most through hikers don't. I love to go downhill. Most through hikers don't. I, I love walking on road because that's the way I train here because we don't have a lot of long distance trails. So I do that. Hikers don't like it. You know, I, I'm just like the anti through hiker in a way, I guess. Next, you're going to tell me that Pennsylvania was your favorite state on the Appalachian Trail. No, I, I definitely won't tell you that. <laughs> yeah. You came to the trail in a very bad spot. What were those first few weeks, those first couple of months along the PCT doing to help your mind, to help heal your mind? Take us through that. You know, uh, since I guess I was saying a second ago, the first day I was engaging with people, something I hadn't done in years, especially people I didn't know. Early on, I kind of felt like... uh, I guess you can say like my soul was being replenished. I mean, and, you know, my interactions with Cookie started that. And then we ended up with uh, another person in our trail family, Tupai, and then nothing yet. And then magical. And, you know, the more I kind of let my guard down, even though it was just a little bit, the more I was feeling better and would notice things like 
the anxiety isn't as bad as it normally is. You know, I mean, before I left to go to the trail, going into, say, a gas station with multiple people there was almost impossible. And if I did go in it, I have to know where everyone is at all times. It's the only way that I can function. And I can't have people behind me. It's like I mean, size up groups like potential threats. Okay, all right, this person, I don't think I need to worry about. This person, I don't. But that person may be a problem. Now I need to know where that person is at all times. And if they're behind me, it just doesn't work. And I've been in places like Walmart and had such bad panic attacks, I thought I was having a heart attack. So, uh, you know, I immediately realized that I'm talking to people, I'm engaging with some people. I may not be completely open, but this is way more than I've been able to do the last few years. So I immediately felt the effects on my mental health. Were there times where it got worse before it got better? And the reason what I mean by that was um, a personal story of mine. When I did my Appalachian Trail through hike last year, at the beginning of it, I was in a bad mental state. Um, I, I certainly don't want to compare it to yours, um, but I was dealing with issues of depression, self-confidence, self-esteem. And I remember having the feeling of when I was going through Maine and New Hampshire, it actually got worse because I was forced to deal with it. Um, the trail heightens things. It, it, it gives you more time to actually deal with what's going on in your head because you have a lot of time to be walking and thinking. Were you dealing with the same thing? Did things get heightened for you at all? All the time and still does when I'm out on these long distance hikes. You know, like you said, when you're walking out in the wilderness, you have so much time to just think about everything. And you think about every aspect of your life, decisions you've made, things you've said to a certain person that you wish you wouldn't have said, things that have happened. You know, if, if you're listening and you're thinking about it through hike, that's the thing that a lot of people need to prepare for, probably more than what they think, is that if you have skeletons, if you have demons or you have dark patches in your life, you're going to have to address them because there's nothing else for you to do but to live in your head. And these questions and these decisions and these events that have happened in your life that you try not to think about, you're going to face them head on. It's true. It, and it gets heightened so much. And it's interesting to bounce from like one area to another. Like I would spend part of one state where I would be thinking about um, my depression. And then I would have other times thinking about like stupid things that I did when I was a teenager. Um and it would just bounce from one thing to another. And again, was that another thing for you? Like you would have certain sections of trail where you were dealing with PTSD. Um, and then you had other sections of trail where maybe you were dealing with traumas from your past or anything like that. Was was that the case as well? I, I don't think it was ever triggered by just a particular section of trail. This is kind of like an everyday thing for me. I, when I'm hiking, I can be thinking about the mileage, the water. Then it could be town resupply. Then it was PISA. Then I could be thinking about Little League game from high school. Then I could be thinking about hamburgers. And then I'll be thinking about something that happened in the military or a person I knew from the military. Then milkshakes, if, if you get the drift, that's food always involved. But it, it <laughs> always just constantly rotates throughout the day. Yeah. And how did the mind work for you? Like, were you just kind of letting the mind wander? Were you actually like talking out loud to yourself at all as you were hiking to work your way through things? I talked out loud constantly while walking. I, I'm, uh, 
I'm big for talking to myself. Even when I'm here, I will speak out loud. At times, I will even answer myself. It's like, why would somebody, why'd you do that, Akuna? Because you're stupid. That's why. And it's like, sometimes I think people walked up on me. It was like, what in the heck is going on with this guy right here? But, you know, sometimes I would have to work things out that way. So I talked to myself a lot. A lot of times, though, I would kind of try to look around and make sure no one's around before I would do it, you know. But that was something I did a lot. And, you know, I know people at home can't see me, but if you're ever around me, you'll realize I move. I fidget a lot. And it's part of the thing I do when anxiety goes up and down or what I'm dealing with things. It's uh, one of the symptoms of my PTSD is kind of like tremors. So I'm always fidgety. I'm always moving. And like my trail families have hated that throughout the years because it means I don't like to sit still for long. You know, oh, we just sat down for five minutes. Let's go. You know, or I'm pacing back and forth while they're taking a break. So I do a lot of that. So now you're improving mentally and as you're going along the PCT and it's helping you out. Did you do the whole PCT in 2016? No, I didn't. I um, was injured going up Whitney. I have uh, an issue with my knees, uh, tracking disorder. They don't just go up and down. They go side to side. They go diagonal, so they dislocate at times. This is why, uh, if you've seen pictures of me, I wear the big braces. And um, while going up Mount Whitney with a member of my trail family, Tupai, I dislocated my knee. And that's usually something that's pretty common for me, but except this time it wouldn't go all the way back in the place. And it was extremely painful. And, you know, we're at the top of Whitney. And at this point, I don't even know if I can get back down. I'm thinking I'm contemplating just hitting the spot device, but we make it down from Whitney. You know, my knee is hurting me, but I was so used to being in pain all the time. So I just kept going. Yeah. We got over uh, Forrester. We went over Kearsarge and down into Bishop. And I was dealing with my, my knee. Tupai at the time was dealing with a stress fracture in our shin. And we both made a decision at the High Sierra. We just can't do it. So we uh, skipped ahead to the uh, Oregon yeah. State line. And we kind of did the highlights of Oregon. You know, we would bounce around from here to there. And in the spirit of Cheryl Stray, we ended our hike at the Bridge of the Gods. So then you were taking some time afterwards to uh, come back and heal and like immediately the thought was, okay, I'm going to come back and finish the rest of the trail later. Uh, That was a thought, but I wasn't committed to it because at this point, I still didn't even know if I enjoyed hiking. You know, I kind of think at that point it was more of I set a goal. I didn't accomplish it. So I just want to accomplish my goal. And uh, I went home from Portland and I was home for maybe a month. And then uh, one of the people that I had hiked with off and on that I got real cool with because he was from Texas. So we were like two Southern people, which you don't see a lot of on the PCT. So we instantly bonded. We were super cool. He hit me up on my phone one day while I was back home. You know, I had done the treatment for my knee. I was good to go. And he had told me how he had been hiking solo, basically from Tahoe and he was getting close to Portland. And, you know, it didn't sit well with me. So, you know, I booked a ticket right then and there, flew back to Portland, was going to try to surprise them at Timberline Lodge. And I I get on a shuttle, you know, public transportation in Portland is off the chain. So I get on that and we stop at a stop and I look up and here he is getting onto the shuttle, (laughs) trying to go into REI. Holy crap. Like, (laughs) are you kidding me? I was just heading up that way to surprise you. 
And so, uh, you know, we hiked together from Timberline Lodge. We made it to Cascade Locks right in time for our PCT days. So we hung out there. I got to see a lot of the hikers that I hadn't seen in months. You know, it was a great time. And then we hiked uh, all the way to Skycomish with each other. And by that time, I knew it was like, yeah, I'm coming back next year because I still have a goal. You know, I, I want to do this whole thing. And uh, I left from Skycomish, you know, I went towards Seattle, got off the bus way too early. So ended up making a Seattle through hike 16 miles to the airport. So that was like the last hurrah for the season. And I get on the plane, you know, I start flying home. And soon as the flight attendants were saying, you know, prepare for landing, I started thinking about all the things I had experienced that season. You know, by the time I picked up my pack from baggage claim and got in my car, it's like, you know, it was like an epiphany. It was like, bruh, I really, really enjoy through hiking. You know, this is going to be my life. This is for me. It's not just that I want to come back next season because I had a goal and I felt like I didn't accomplish it. I want to come back next season because I love this lifestyle and it's, it's helped me so much and I enjoy it so much. I, I just need to go back. It sounds like you were already by that point in such a better mindset uh, at, than what you were at the beginning of the trail in Campo. Definitely, definitely. You know, I, uh, even now, you know, I battle with a lot of the same things, but, you know, being out in nature it gave me the ability to deal with things a lot better than what I had been. You know, prior, you know, I had done so many types of therapy from biofeedback therapy, group therapy, you know, uh, intensive therapy. I've had so many different medications over the years for, you know, uh, PTSD and all the symptoms that go along with it that just made me feel like a zombie, but it wasn't really helping my mental state. And just that time I was out there and that's 1600 miles on the PCT at 16 did more for me than 13 years worth of traditional mental health treatment. What do you think it ultimately boils down to? What makes it about backpacking and hiking that can put you in such a better mental state? I think really what it is, is, you know, when you get out into the backcountry, it's probably the only times that some of us have ever had to where we can actually work on ourselves without all the other distractions, mm -hmm. without the cell phones ringing all the time, the running around and doing errands and paying bills and, uh, you know, the friends and family, the things that's going on in their lives becoming part of your life now, you know, so here it was just like, the only thing I have to do is make sure I'm on trail, make sure I know where the right water is and work on myself. And I, I really believe that is one of the big reasons why being out in the back country helps so many people with their mental health is because you're actually having the time to work on you. Yeah, I totally agree. It's the simplicity of it, the simplicity of a goal. You follow this path. You basically eat, walk, poop drink water, sleep, do it again the next day and just repeat that over and over again. It's it's and everything you own is on your back, you know, definitely. It's just like if you look at our society, it's not designed for you to take you time. You know, we, we have most people have a nine to five to consume so much of your time Then you're running your errands. You're doing all the things that you have to do or people depend on you to do, you know, that you very rarely take the time for you. You know, I mean, I have 
family members that have been working jobs for five and six years that have never taken a vacation. You know, they don't have the time for it. So then I wonder in that time between when you got back from the PCT after your 1600 miles and um, then the time you went back the next year to finish it off, did that creep start to come back into your life? Did you start to deal with those mental problems again? You know, in the through hiking world, we call it post-trail depression. You yeah. Know, once you finish the trail, it it consumes a lot of people and a lot of people have tried to figure out, you know, how to avoid it. I think the cure for me was the fact that I was always planning the next trail, you know. So when I came home in 16, it was easy for me to combat, you know, the depression and the anxiety when they would come up by keeping myself busy by prepping for the next trail. It's like, now I know what type of gear I need. So I'm ordering that. I'm testing that out. I know what type of shape I need to be in. So I'm out hiking around town every morning at 5 a.m. And that's how I was able to keep the depression from coming back as bad as it did prior. So you come back, you do the PCT. Did you do the whole thing again or did you uh, fill in the gaps? Where would be the fun in that, man? I went right back to the beginning. Nice. And 17 was a rough year. We called it the year of fire and ice. The Sierra took so much snow that year. The, there were so many fire closures, so many detours. So as much as I wanted to have, you know, uh, a continuous footpath north, I did end up having to flip-flop to finish the Sierra. So then you did that, and then ultimately this resulted in you over the next few years becoming the first uh, African-American male to complete the Triple Crown, right? Right. Every trail presents different challenges. What would you say the main challenges were that you faced on each trail? Wow. Um, the PCT, because it was my first trail, my main challenge was figuring out what hiking was, what gear required, you know, how much physical energy, how much preparation. So I kind of had the the barrier of figuring out the outdoor lifestyle when it came to the PCT. And, you know, the AT, I mean, I'm sorry, the PCT taught me how to get over the social barrier. When I went to the AT, the AT was to me, mentally, the toughest trail that I did out of these these three, you know, um, so much. I mean, when you come from the West Coast and you have your introduction to through hiking and you go to the East Coast, it's completely different. You know, those nice, gentle switchbacks and those continuous views that may get you through a rough day. They weren't there on the AT. <laughs> They're like switchbacks. <laughs> yeah. Yeah. When you combine that with the fact that you can reach a gap like every, you know, two or three gaps a day at times. It was anytime you're having a bad day, the opportunity to jump off trail is there. So, you know, you kind of have to try to talk yourself out of it. And, you know, when you're wet, cold, miserable, and you know there's a gap coming up in like a mile, you know, you can be done with this. So it was mentally tough to stay on that trail. So on that trail, you know, I think that was the barrier for me was getting over the mental hurdles of, uh, you know, being able to tap out whenever I wanted to. But I also got back into the leadership role while I was on that trail. You know, a lot of AT hikers were first time hikers. You know, I had through hiked the PCT. I had 4,200 miles under my belt. So a lot of people looked 
up to me and they wanted to hike with me or they wanted advice from me. And that was something that I hadn't done in years. You know, I'd always been a leader as a younger person, but during my whole bout with uh, PTSD and depression, those 13 years, leadership was something I didn't want any part of. You know, I'm trying to figure this out for myself. I, I can't lead anyone else. But um, on the AT, you know, I, I discovered, hey, I still have this ability to be a leader. I enjoy being a leader. I, I like, you know, encouraging new people and seeing them grow. So I embraced that part of my life again. Then um, the CDT, you know, that was the trail where it was like, you know, it was a brutal trail. It's a lot of planning, a lot of logistics. It's a lot of uh, being flexible. And that was what the the CDT gave back to me was the ability to adjust on the fly again, you know, to know everything's not perfect, but we can still keep it moving. You know, when the the San Juans give you record snows and everyone's having to be evacuated or turned back. It's like, is that the end of your hike? No, you adjust your hike. You take that great divide bike path. You do whatever you got to do. You just keep moving forward. So I learned how to adjust again on that trail and to be flexible. And I also learned that, you know, what got me through that first year of hiking was my trail family, you know, all the, the social engagements that I created and look forward to. Same thing on the AT with the CDT. You don't really have that. It was uh, just me and undecided it was uh, my girlfriend and hiking partner the last two years. It was just us the whole time. You know, I mean, we saw hikers every now and then, but the first two or three months was just us. And you really don't see day hikers or section hike. Well, certainly not uh, day hikers out there on the CDT because it's really remote, right? The closest thing that we would see for day hikers is when you get into Colorado and you start meshing with the Colorado Trail. And that's when we would see more people out for, say, a weekend or just a day. But even then, it was pretty limited. So, you know, I had to, to rely more on myself on that trail than I did the other two. So, you know, it gave me that back, the ability to know hey, it's just me, but that's okay. I can still do what I need to do. I have enough confidence in myself to know I'm doing the right thing. So it made me, you know, it reinforced my resilience. It sounds like each of these three trails in some way helped you with some form of mental development or mental healing. The PCT helped you deal with your initial mental struggles that you had been dealing with in the years before the PCT. The AT, it sounds like, helped you to be willing to embrace more leadership responsibility and just overall mental toughness. And then the CDT was teaching you about resilience and just being able to push on through situations where you really could only rely on yourself out there. Definitely. These are all things, all qualities I always possess. But, I, you know, when you de when you deal with deep depression, you second guess yourself. You don't think you have the ability to to accomplish things anymore. You don't think you have the ability to stand up and be a voice or be a leader, you know. And then as far as resilience go, man, I'm from southeast Louisiana. This is what we do. We're known for being resilient. You know, we get knocked down and we keep it moving. I was raised like that my whole life, but I had forgot. And doing these three trails, you know, just reinforced all of those things and brought them right back out in me. Was the Triple Crown something that you specifically set out to achieve or was it just you had your eye on just doing these three trails as a challenge? 
I didn't even know there was more trails outside of the Pacific Crest Trail until I got on the Pacific Crest Trail. You know, then I started hearing people, oh, yeah, I hiked the AT. It's like the AT. What's that? Yeah, you know, I'm thinking about doing a CDT next year. It's like there's another one. And that's when I found out how many different trail networks there are throughout the United States is by hiking. So when I started hiking, I had no clue there was a triple crown that you could actually achieve. And, you know, after the PCT, you know, well, during the PCT, I would have told somebody, you know, are you, if they asked me if I was doing the Appalachian Trail, I would have tell them, heck no, nah. no, I'm not going out there because I would hear about how wet it is and rainy it is and things like that. It, it did not sound entertaining to me. But as we got close to finishing the PCT, you know, I was getting contacted on Instagram by a lot of uh, other veterans and a lot of a lot of BIPOC people telling me that, uh, you know, that I inspired them. And I remember getting a message from a person telling me that he had been dealing with PTSD for a long time, like I had, and he had been following my journey and decided, you know, he wanted to try nature therapy and started hiking and backpacking and biking. And it was helping him. So it's like, wow, that's really cool. So, yeah, I wonder if we can uh, reach more people and tell them about these alternatives to help with your mental health. So before I even got to the end of the PCT, I was like, I'm hiking the AT. As much as I don't want to, I think I'm going to hike the AT because I'm still working on me. And during this process, I might be able to help other people by sharing my story. What was the significance to you that of you becoming the first uh, African-American man to achieve the Triple Crown? You know, it was an unreal moment, you know, and more than anything, I looked at it as the opportunity to inspire more BIPOC people to hike. Because, I mean, a lot of the times we try different things because we've seen other people do it, people that we can relate to, people who may come from our same background, upbringing, maybe our same city. And, you know, during the years I've been hiking, you know, it's noticeable that the trails aren't as diverse as they we would like them to be. And, you know, I felt like achieving the Chippewa Crown and having it out there for everyone to see was going to, to help get more uh, Black men, Black women, Indigenous people and other people of color out on trail because they would say, hey, this person accomplished this. He looks like me or he comes from the same type of background that I do, you know, and he did it so I can do it too. And, you know, that was the, the thing about achieving a triple crown that I was most proud of was having the ability to show people that you know, we may not fit the stereotype of what's outdoorsy, but we can accomplish these big things anyway. Yeah. I also think about how Chardonnay ties into this, too, because Chardonnay, um, first African-American and first African-American woman to successfully complete the Triple Crown. Um, did she serve as an influence to you um, while you were going for your Triple Crown? I uh, heard about Chardonnay the first time. And I think was actually on the AT halfway through, I think, because uh, she came back to complete the AT that she had started a couple years earlier. And, you know, by the time I got close to finishing AT, that was when I first uh, heard that that was the end of the Triple Crown Trails for her. And I thought that was off the chain. You know, I, I was very, very, very impressed, very, very, very proud to know that, you know, this is uh, something that 
uh, people are trying to achieve and not just me as a black person. And, you know, uh, it did inspire me to just keep going. And then when you finished, I'm curious to know this, you know, as an African-American, what was the community response to you accomplishing the Triple Crown? And what would you say the community response was to Chardonnay accomplishing the Triple Crown? You know, uh, the community response when I accomplished the, the Triple Crown was overwhelming. You know, I had magazine interviews, you know, I had local news here in New Orleans where most people don't know anything about a through hike were bringing me on the news to talk about accomplishing a triple crown, you know, and it, it was a very, very, very overwhelming amount of support that came in for me. And a lot of that, I believe, is due to the fact that I am a sponsored athlete. You know, I have Merrill as my sponsor that has taken such great care of me and supported me. And they believed in my message and they wanted to share it to as many people as they could. So we did the, we did a film on the AT and a film on the CDT when I completed the Triple Crown. And, you know, I think that's what got the attention out there to this and the message to so many people. You know, it's always so unfortunate when I think about this because Chardonnay finished her Triple Crown the year before I did, becoming the first African-American to complete the Triple Crown. And she did it with not a lot of fanfare. You know, if you talk to Chardonnay, she doesn't usually like a lot of attention. But, you know, that accomplishment was so huge that it deserved more attention than it actually got. Do you feel like considering everything that's been happening in the last few months that all of a sudden now she's getting the attention? And is it a strange feeling that all of a sudden it's happening now? You know, uh, me, Chardonnay, pretty much any black outdoors influencer, athlete, social media, digital content provider. I, I think we've all had this conversation at some point. And it's, it is a strange, strange feeling to be getting so much more attention now than we did prior. You know, Chardonnay did get some attention after the CDT, I mean, after her Triple Crown. But I believe even she would tell you the last two months, it's been amplified. I know for myself, I, I accomplished the Triple Crown in September of last year. I think I picked up more followers in the last two months than I did then. You know, I have more requests, more people getting in contact with me, more people wanting advice, more uh, more of the smaller brands reaching out to me than I ever have. And it's such a strange thing because it's like, you know, I had this great accomplishment months ago and now you want to talk to me. So are you here because you like the person I am and the things that I've accomplished in the outdoor industry? Or are you here because you're looking for a token to put up on your, uh, you know, your Instagram sites or your websites to be able to say, hey, see, we believe in diversity. Yeah. And it's 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 totally understandable. It's like, yeah, okay, are you you know, are you actually sincere about this or is it almost almost like a profiteering background? Um, It it has to be a strange feeling. It really does. It it really is. I think. uh, I think with the exception of when rap became mainstream, this is probably the most popular (laughs) that I could be as a black man in America in my life. Yeah. So the question I do want to ask, because to be completely honest, I wonder about the same thing with this podcast. You know, I wish we had honestly 
started this podcast and been able to have an interview with you before anything happened a few months ago with George Floyd. But then, you know, reflecting on the past is one thing. The best we can do is go forward. So I guess the question for the audience and for people like me are what are some ways we now and in the future can help with being an ally to BIPOC in uh, the outdoors industry? First off, uh, as far as brands and business standpoints, I think to be good allies, you need to be doing the things like uh, you guys are already doing with Gaia GPS. Because when I was first contacted about doing this podcast, I had reservations and, you know, I didn't see any support for Black Lives Matter movement on the website or on the page when I was approached. And, you know, I had to apologize because I think I flashed on Mary when she contacted me saying that, yeah, you know, I'm not going to be your token, basically. Mary uh, contacted me back later and was telling me that we didn't post because we didn't want it to be more than just a post. You know, we wanted to change the way we do business. We wanted to make sure diversity was included in our hiring. You know, we wanted to make sure that we fairly compensated everybody and we wanted to do the work internally before we posted about it because, and to me, that's more important than anything. You know, when it comes to brands trying to be better allies is like, don't just put up a black square or a comment saying you support black matters, you know, show us, show us what you're doing. And I think, you know, you guys at Gaia GPS and some of the other brands are ahead of the power curve. So, you know, I salute you guys on that. And, you know, ultimately, that's why I came out here and say, yes, I will do this. I love what you're doing. So, you know, as far as brands go, that's the way to be a better ally is actually, uh, you know, implement some policies and procedures that are actually going to help within your organizations and then put your money where your mouth is, you know. And uh, as far as people who just, who just enjoy the outdoors, hikers, climbers, backpackers, you know, if you want to be uh, good allies, you know, treat us the way you want to be treated. You know, I mean, just be kind. You know, I mean, we're not asking to be treated any uh, like we're special. We're not asked to be treated like we're, we uh, we need to be put on a platform. We want to just, you know, you be kind to us. We be kind to you. You know, if we're a horrible individual, treat us like that horrible individual. If we're a great person, treat us like you would normally treat a great person. You know, and that's what we're looking for. We're looking for that. We're looking, you know, for to be a better ally. I think we all have seen, you know, inappropriate behavior before. And so many times we just let it go because we think it's not worth the hassle. And, you know, being an ally means even when, say, a black person isn't around, if you hear someone saying an inappropriate joke about black people, stop it. Shut it down right then and there. You know, I mean, show up even when we're not around. Yeah. I think of the line, character is what you do when people aren't looking. Exactly. So thank you for that. That's good information to be sharing. And, you know, we'll keep that in mind going forward. All of us in the community, I know we strive to keep that in mind going forward. It has to have been, it's been a stressful time for so many people in our country. We are living in very unprecedented times with extra stress. And it seems like everyone's on high edge. How have you been using hike? Have you been using hiking to help you over uh, the last few months? 
very limited, you know, with COVID and everything going on and social distancing and being here in Louisiana where I don't have a lot of access to trails, you know, it's been limited. I mean, uh, I try to get out on Saturdays to my happy place, which is a big branch marsh here. And I like to, to go hike around the bayou. That trail is only like four miles round trip. So I'll try to do that on Saturdays when the mosquitoes aren't eating me alive. You know, I, I like to urban hike. So I normally would hike around the community and the neighborhoods. But at times people don't like you doing that during COVID. You know, some people have a problem with someone in their neighborhood that's not more that doesn't live there. So I've kind of reduced that. And, you know, it's it's taking a it's all of, everything that's been going on is it's been taking its toll on my physical and mental health, because I mean, for people who don't have uh, things that they're dealing with with their mental health, you probably don't know. But when you have depression, anxiety or or any other mental health condition, it affects you physically. You know, you're, you have the body aches, the body pains, you know, you, you have the days you can't get out of bed. And that has been taking a toll on me, you know, with everything that's been going on. And, uh, you know, just like this last week, I had to take a mental health break. You know, I got off the social media. I put the phone in airplane mode so I didn't have to see all the the nonsense that's going on in the news. And I just took a mental health break for a week and banned life around Utah to just, you know, give myself some peace and came back now. And I'm feeling, you know, rejuvenated. I can totally relate on that last one with uh, deactivating from social media. The previous weekend, my wife and I went down to a Kodachrome in southern Utah. And the best part about that area, there's no cell service. So there's no <laughs> social media to poison your mind. Uh, social media is is nuts all the time. The last two months, you know, I have so many DMs, emails, comments that I haven't been able to get to. And if you're one of the people that sent something and you're listening, I apologize for that. You know, I do appreciate the love and support, but it, it is overwhelming, you know, all the attention that we're getting during this time. You know, we're hurting. And every time we we see a new post where somebody mentions the word black or African-American or BIPOC, there's so much hate in these comments and it just takes this mental toll on us and it exhausts us. You know, prior to this last week, I mean, I was absolutely mentally just drained. It's just, you know, every time you turn around, it's more and more and more hate or there's more people who, you know, have the best intentions and they want to to get information from you to be a better ally. And it just, you know, it makes you go back to all the hate that's there and it just drains you even more and more and more. So, you know, I, I think a lot of us have had to take these little breaks from social media just to recharge so we can come right back to the fight. Yeah. Yeah. That's a good way of looking at it. And again, I really appreciate you taking some time to come on here and talk with us about that. You know, this is, we really appreciate it. So I want to wrap this up by actually talking about a little bit more cheerful stuff. <laughs> um, I guess the first thing I want to ask is what is next for Akuna? Um, next. You know, that is really going to be up to COVID. You know, yeah. North Country Trail was on my radar for this year, and I had to scrap that plan. I still have the AZ, uh, AZT, the Arizona Trail, that I was pl uh, planning on doing in October as a victory lap from the NCT. So fingers crossed that I might be able to do that. But as of right now, COVID looks like it's wrecking Arizona. So that may be off the table, too. If so, you know, 
it is what it is. You know, we're going to keep it moving. We're going to keep spreading our good vibes and we're just going to wait on next year and, and be on the NCT in March. Long as you know, nice. the world can return to somewhat normal levels. Keeping the fingers crossed on those, totally. So NCT, Arizona Trail, are there any other big trails that you have on your list for the future? Um, and I'm looking at doing the Te Aurora in 2022. Nice. In uh, New Zealand, you know, that's been on my bucket list forever. I mean, come on, Lord of the Rings. Yeah. How can you not want to go to New Zealand? <laughs> well, you know, I, you know, I got to get my, my salmon Frodo on. So, yeah, I'm hitting up New Zealand. And, you know, uh, maybe uh, go out to the, the, the new trailer parks that's down in uh, South America going through uh, Patagonia and Chile. You know, uh, that that one's on the radar. And who knows, maybe in the next couple of years, I can actually hit my bucket list hike. The one that I want to do more than any other hike. And that's actually the entire Great Wall of China. Wow. The Great Wall of China through hike. Yeah, I, I, it's been one I've been thinking about since I first got into through hiking. I mean, it's over 5,000 miles, the entire Great Wall of China. It's not all intact, but, you know, so much culture and so much history. I mean, I love to learn new things, so that would be right up my alley. That never even occurred to me that you could possibly do a hike that follows the length of the Great Wall. Holy cow, I think I just gained a new bucket list item. <laughs> cool. Then I'm keeping the fingers crossed on that one, man. That's awesome. That's awesome. All right. Want to wrap up with a few quick, rapid, fun questions. What is your favorite trail food? Milkshakes. Milkshakes? I crave them anytime we get anywhere near a town. It doesn't matter what type, just milkshake. On trail, on trail, gummy bears. Won't leave town without gummy bears in the pack. Nice. What is your all-time favorite trail town and why? Whoa. All-time favorite trail town. Uh, I'm going to say it is Bishop. Bishop, California, being at the Hostel California out there is just magical. And it comes at the right time. You know, you come down from the Sierra for that first real break at the forest there, Keir Sergeant Whitney. And the environment they have set up there, it's like going to your best friend's house that you haven't seen for a year or two. You know, at first it's awkward, but then boom, you're right back in the same routine and you feel like you're back home. And it doesn't hurt that they have an authentic German bakery. And oh my goodness, I think I spent way more than my town budget just there at Schatz. Last one. Would you rather never have to sleep or never have to eat? <sighs> Well, I kind of think I've already done that one. Never have to sleep. I won't give up food, but one of my symptoms of PTSD is insomnia. So I already don't sleep but two or three hours a day unless I'm hiking. Cool. Then we've solved that one right there. <laughs> <laughs> cool. Well, thank you so much, Akuna. Like like I said earlier, I mean, we really, really appreciate you being on here and for being willing to talk about all of these important matters and just hearing your story, man. It's it's really appreciated. Uh, no problem, man. Always enjoy chopping it up about my favorite topics, you know, hiking. All right. Well, take care, my friend. And we hope we talk with you again soon. All right. Now be easy. A giant thanks to Akuna for spending his time with us today on the show. If you want to learn more about Akuna, you can follow him on Instagram at Akuna Hikes. That's A-K-U-N-A Hikes. Or visit our show notes on the Gaia GPS blog to read more about him. 
And speaking of Gaia GPS, don't forget that you can get up to 50% off on a Gaia GPS membership by going to GaiaGPS.com slash podcast. Next week, we're talking with Justin Lichter, or Trauma, as he's known in the outdoors community. Trauma has taken his adventuring beyond the Triple Crown Trails and into places like the Himalayas and a thru-hike of Africa. Well, until a pride of lions cut his trip short, but we'll get into that with him next week. An author of guidebooks and a map consultant for National Geographic, Trauma also talks about the trip that made him famous, a winter thru-hike of the Pacific Crest Trail. You won't want to miss this one, so make sure to tune in next week. And also, as a final note, if you're enjoying our shows, please leave us a review on Apple Podcasts. It's such a boost to us when we see people's reviews, and it really keeps us going. So until next week, this is Shanti, and thanks for listening to the Out and Back podcast presented by Gaia GPS. Take care.